Hello, everybody. This is Andre. Welcome to another episode of the Marketing Innovation Podcast Show. Our special guest for today is Anastasia Leng, who is the founder and CEO of CreativeX, an automated creative excellence platform used by brands to measure creative efficiency, consistency, and impact across all of their image and video content worldwide. Today, we'll discuss the current issues we as marketers face in tracking content effectiveness across channels, measuring brand impact, and how to use data to create better content. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Anastasia. How are you? Let's do this. Hi, Andre. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So um, let's uh, let's talk a bit about you because you have a very interesting background. Uh, you've done a lot of impressive stuff in the past. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like to let you introduce yourself to our audience a bit so um, all of us can get to know you a bit better before diving into the nitty gritty. Sure. Um, so let's see, where do I start? Well, I... Um... I started my career in marketing. I spent about uh, six years working at Google, first in the marketing team, then moved on to do some product and business development work. Mm -hmm. And then after about six years there, I left Google to start my own company, which was an e-commerce business at the time. We were trying to create a customizable retail experience. And that really wasn't working. It was my my, uh, first experience with starting a company that was ultimately a failed company. But through the process of trying to salvage that business, we started realizing that imagery and video was very important. And we wanted a more data-driven way of understanding it. We started tinkering with some ideas and technologies to make that possible. Mm-hmm. And that led to the creation of um, CreativeX. So out of a failed company came a much more successful one. So I guess for, for all the different, different listeners um, that, that are tuning in right now, uh, you know, I've been both an entrepreneur, a marketer. I I have now fused these two things that I love doing into one, and I'm an entrepreneur building a company for marketers. Amazing, amazing, <laughs> super. So that's that's such a fun experience. Uh, can we go with, like before uh, diving into the uh, subject that is today, uh, which is creative backs? Um, I think it'd be really interesting to uh, find out a bit about the transition period, and uh, you know, like from Hatch, how you like what you learned from there, and how you got to discover this issue and then to develop it into a product and service and the platform and the business that it is today. I think it's uh, it's an insightful journey and I think uh, it will be relevant for many of the people that are um, today listening to us. Mm, absolutely. So, you know, uh, we had been building Hatch for about two years and we had been trying to do everything to make it work. Now, Hatch was a marketplace. On one hand, we had um, sellers or in our case, makers. And on the other hand, we had you know consumers who were buying the products from the sellers. And one of the things that's difficult about building marketplace is you, know, you have to build two sides simultaneously, right? You, you need kind of both sides of the coin to be there for the marketplace to work effectively. And what we found is we had no trouble attracting makers or sellers to the side, but had a lot of trouble... Um, getting buyers sort of at scale. And as a small company, you know, a lot of the tools that that brands use to drive consumer demand and demand generation, we simply didn't have because we didn't have a lot of money, right? As a mm-hmm. startup, you have no resources. And so the, you know, the the insight that led to the creation of CreativeX was we started looking and trying to understand where do our best consumers come from? You know, the folks who really like our product, who engage with our product, et cetera. And we started finding that a lot of them were coming from platforms that were very visual, right? Instagram, Pinterest, you know, whenever we put imagery on Facebook. And the thing that was tricky for us is we couldn't understand what was it about some images that got our consumers to actually click and come to our site and, you know, experience uh, our product. 
And others that looked very similar to, to us and to Naked Eye, they didn't quite have the same consumer reaction. And so we have this problem where, you know, we had this company, it wasn't working. When we realized and look at what is working, where all of our traffic coming is coming from, it's from these visually led platforms, but we couldn't piece two and two together. We couldn't figure out how to make them work. And that's where, you know, we, we basically sat down and thought about how can we be more objective here, right? We, we were always a very data-driven team. Uh, we, we had, at that point, we were predominantly engineers. So we were trying to figure out, we hate the fact that we're guessing here. So how can we put a little bit more data into the process? Um, and that's what led to the creation of CreativeX. And what we ended up doing actually at that time is we took a spreadsheet, we put uh, every single image or video we were using at that time. And for the different columns, we put in binary questions, right? So things like, is our logo in the image? Yes or no. Does the creative have a person in it? Yes or no, et cetera. And we had someone manually at that time go through and essentially put a zero or one, depending on whether that image had that creative attribute. Um, and as we were putting that data in and combining it with our other data, we started to see patterns. So, you know, I guess the, the long story short here, and I think there are probably lots of stories like this, um, it was our, our kind of unwillingness as, as entrepreneurs and founders at the time to admit that the other business wasn't working and our our relentless pursuit of something that would get it to work that mm -hmm. got us to where we are today, even though obviously the business we're running today is very, very different than the business we were running when we first started this thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what what were the early assumptions or findings that... So you pulled all these, all these data together and you saw some patterns. Uh, what were some of the patterns that you identified that enabled you to think about it at a bigger scale and think, oh, actually, there's going to be probably more businesses uh, encountering these issues and, you know, kind of shaping the new business out of the insights that you got from the old one? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I actually can't take much credit for this because at this point, you know, uh, we were just trying to make the company work. So the fact that we all of a sudden had this data, we were seeing patterns, we started making decisions based on this data. So the decisions we started making were, what kind of images should we be creating in the first place? And, you know, how should we think about our content production and how we photograph things and all of that? And we started making decisions and they saw that our revenue started going up. So what had happened at the time was this was about the summer of 2015. All of a sudden, the business started doing much better, right? We had profitable unit economics. Uh, all of a sudden, our growth curve started going up and through the rate. And so I went out and started fundraising for the company, right? Because I was like, great, you know, we figured it out. We're doing much better. Um, we, we could sort of compete without having as much money as some, some better funded companies. So I went out and started fundraising. And basically... What had happened, which was which was you know more luck than anything else, I think, was a number of investors uh, pulled me aside when they took a bit of a deeper look into the company and said, "Well, what's happening here? You know, where's this growth coming from? What are you guys doing?" And I'd explained the methodology that we started applying to the way that we were making um, image and video decisions. And it was actually the investors who pointed out that this is a much bigger problem. You know, as a founder, I think the problem you have is sometimes you get tunnel vision, right? Mm -hmm. So I was so focused on, on our company and our problem that at that time, I didn't actually take a step back and think, hey, do other people have this problem? And it took other people pointing it out to me. And I remember one of, when we'd explained to one of the investors that we were talking to what we were doing, he said, every company in my portfolio is struggling with this problem. Mm -hmm. And that's when sort of the piece of luck came in because at that point, you know, we 
We had this company, which was this e-commerce business. The stuff that we've been talking about was was really a bunch of spreadsheets and some ideas. We'd started automating a bunch of it at that point, but it was still very, very early. And we had an investor who who came and said, after a conversation, he said, look, if you want to spin this out into a separate company, uh, you know, I will back you and I will, I will back the company, um, but I'm now going to back the e-commerce business. And I remember we, we received a term sheet and the term sheet literally said under name, it said new company because we didn't even have a company name at that time, right? So, so I wish I could tell you, you know, I was the one who sort of saw this, but at that point I was so focused on, on sort of saving the existing e-commerce business that it took other people pointing it out to me for me to realize, hey, maybe there is something here. And when that happened and when, when, when he suggested, we think this is a bigger problem, I did two things. The first one is I went back to the team and I said, look, this is what's happening. It, it doesn't look like we're going, going to be able to fundraise for this e-commerce business, but we have a couple of people interested in this sort of side hustle we've got going on. Um, how, how do you feel about this as a team? And at that point, we were predominantly a team of engineers and the engineering team said, uh, you know, this is much more interesting, right? As a technical problem, et cetera, this is, this is a much more interesting problem for us to solve. But then we still, because we'd had this experience and anyone who's been a founder can probably relate of, you know, toiling tirelessly for two years to try to make this e-commerce work. The, the last thing I wanted to do was jump into another business without really thinking it through. And so the thing that we did, which, which was very helpful in retrospect, is before we actually signed any term sheet, et cetera, I pinged as many marketers as I knew and said, hey, here's some stuff we've been experimenting with. What do you think? Is this valuable? And basically, the response we got was, let us know when you launch a beta because we want to sign up. And that was the first time where sort of a light bulb went off because um, we received very strong reaction to this idea, which made us comfortable as a team that if we were to go down this track, there probably is an interesting product that could be built. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, you basically were faced with a decision of uh, you worked for this much time on this business. It was becoming profitable. Uh, one question that I have in mind was, uh, I mean, a few, <laughs> but uh, maybe because many entrepreneurs find themselves in, you, you know, like this hustle of getting something up and running, it starts to mm. work. You start to make some money out of it, even if it's not enough. Uh, and then it's very hard to let it go for another opportunity, even if you know, that other opportunity might be a more scalable one or so on. So my two questions here were um, main ones. One of them was, how big was the business in terms of, you know, profits or revenue when you had to leave it for this other one, just for the, you know, like the people that are maybe in the same situation to see that they are not alone <laughs> if um, something like this comes along. And, you know, sometimes you have to take the leap of faith and, uh, you know, trust that it's going to go well. And the other, yeah. uh, did you have to completely give it up or you start, you still run it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, to be honest, I can't even remember the numbers at this point because it's been so long, but, uh, you know, I, I think maybe in, in gross merchandise value, we're making a couple hundred thousand, um, dollars a year. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't sort of massive. I would say probably about half a million a year is what we were pulling in in terms of GMV. The, the difficult thing was that, you know, e-commerce is very, is, is tough as a space because the margins are very low, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you're, if you're transacting um, half a million dollars a year, which again, is not even sort of a, a gigantic amount, the amount that you get to take back as a company to reinvest back into growth and all of that is, is very, very small. It's much smaller than that. And so where we were is we, I think 
what was becoming very clear to us at that point in the journey is we could run the business profitably, but not if we wanted it to be a huge business, right? It felt like the business we created was really a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. And that's all well and good. And I think there is, you know, there's a lot of value to to building profitable and, and great lifestyle businesses, but it's just not what we wanted at the time. So mm-hmm. when we all sat down as a team, and again, a lot of what our team, that that early team had in common is we were a lot of big company converts, right? Meaning that a lot of us were people who had very intentionally left big, comfortable jobs to go do something. And what we really wanted to do is we wanted to build a rocket ship, right? The common, the common Silicon Valley analogy, we want to do something that would grow fast and that would, that would scale and that would be used by, by millions, if not billions of people. And what we realized with Hatch was, you know, we built a business and it was, it was a decent business, but it was never going to scale the way that we wanted. And I think the other thing that really worried us was even if that business, if we were to really invest in that business and grow it, we could never do it without significant capital at every stage, mm-hmm. right? Because of, of the margins and sort of the dynamics of the e-commerce business. So we had this decision to make around, and at the time actually that we we started thinking about creating what is now CreativeX, we also thought about, you know, sort of selling the company and and uh, going in and working somewhere larger that focused on a similar issue, but ultimately felt like we were much more excited about what we had stumbled upon. Now, we did keep the site running to your question. Uh, we kept it running for about maybe two years after we stopped working on it and it paid for itself, right? It, it covered all of its own costs. But then when CreativeX started to take off, we felt that um, it was really just a distraction. So I'm one of those people that I, I, need, I need focus. And uh, you know, even for example, when I sit down to work, I need to clear my desk before I do something very big, right? Because I need clarity, I need focus. And Hatch was becoming the sort of thing in the rear view mirror that was starting to bother me a little bit just because it still required a little love and maintenance. Um, so eventually we shut it down. I think we sold off some of the assets and we reinvested it back into CreativeX. Mm-hmm. Okay, super. So uh, let's go into the subject that is our discussion today then. This was very insightful. and I think it helped us all get more context around how CreativeX came about. Um, so in the first, uh, you know, in beta or when you first started to put it together and, uh, maybe get it out to the first marketers to test, what was the main, so sol- the main problem that you were solving, where, where was it coming into, you know, like the marketing stack or like marketing tech stack or how, how are people using it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, all these questions are making me kind of think back to how we felt at the time when all of this was happening. So. We did launch a beta in about, I think, 20, 2017. We spent about a year building the underlying technology. And, uh, you know, a lot of the assumptions mean the beta were, fl- frankly, very wrong, right? Um, but the assumption we made for the beta was the assumption that catalyzed the creation of CreativeX, which is that if we could marry uh, creative data with performance data, we could offer marketers insights about what are the creative attributes that perform better than others from a digital performance point of view. So what we were essentially doing with the beta was is it plugged into a number of social media platforms. It analyzed their imagery for hundreds of thousands of visual cues, right? Colors, whether or not it had people, dogs, cats, like tons and tons of visual information. And then they could go in and essentially see is there any performance difference between images that had dogs versus images that had cats or images that have people versus images that didn't have people? So provided them this way of 
understanding a little bit more what was working in those in those images and what wasn't. And you know, that was again kind of what led to the to the insight that led to the creation of Creative X. So it felt like a logical step for us to take. But actually, when we got that beta into the market, what we saw was it didn't really work, right? And, and there were a couple of reasons why that beta didn't really work. The first reason is, and then probably really the most important one was, fundamentally, this is not how creativity works, right? Mm-hmm. If I tell you that having dogs in your images or having citrus or lemon in your, in your photos increases click-through rate by a little bit, it's fun. It's a fun insight, right? And it's cool to know. But ultimately, you're not going to put a dog or a lemon in every image, right? That's Mm -hmm. not how things work. And so what we realized was at that time, while there's a lot of value to helping brands be more data-driven, we needed to provide that data at the right level because we didn't want to build technology that killed or or hindered creativity. We, we actually wanted to do the opposite, right? We wanted to build technology that would say, hey, here's some, some interesting insights that you can then put on steroids. But because we were being so detailed about the things we picked up on, it actually led to the kinds of things where people would say, okay, that's, that's cool. It's a cool insight. But what can I really do with it? The fact mm-hmm. that, you know, having green in my image means more conversions doesn't mean I'm going to make all my images green. And so that was kind of the, the first, um, and it was a very painful realization, right? Because at this point, you know, uh, we spent about a year to a year and a half building this. We spent pretty much all of the seed investment money we had on this beta. And we were following the, the assumptions that we started with, but we launched it. And it wasn't something that was really aligned with how marketers thought about creativity or how they wanted to use this kind of technology. So, you know, come sort of end of 2017, in some ways, we were back at square one trying to figure out, okay, we have this technology, we have all this data, but we still haven't found product market fit or that use case that really aligns with the ways that the marketers we know want to work. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? <laughs> so, <laughs> so what we did is, we, you know, we went back and, and talked to as many users as we could. Um, we went back and we, we basically went to every user we had and we said, you know, uh, you signed up. You sort of wanted these insights, right? We've given you these insights. They're not really usable. What else can we do? Like, when it comes to imagery and video, what are the problems you're trying to solve? And the first, and, and something we kept hearing sort of over and over again, and again, keep in mind at this point, the people who were experimenting with our product and testing our system tended to be bigger brands, mm-hmm. right? They tended to be sort of Fortune 500 type brands, um, global in nature, lots of, uh, lots of brands in their portfolio. And as we started asking them what we could do to what we could build for them and what are the problems they're really struggling with, a pattern started emerging. And the pattern that was emerging is basically a lot of brands said they struggled with the same problem, which was as platforms like Pinterest, you know, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, now TikTok, et cetera, were growing in popularity. A lot of the brands are that where they put their media dollars and the kind of content that created really shifted to visual. So they, there was, you know, and again, this is going to sound obvious now and very, very dated, but in 2017, 
image and video production was growing about three to five X year over year. So, so brands like they could barely keep up with the amount of image and video content they were creating. But the problem with this proliferation of content is that as you create so much content, how do you ensure that your content follows best practices, stays on brand, is utilizing the latest learnings, et cetera. And what they said to us is like, look, it's great that you can tell us if the image has a lemon in it. But what I really want to understand before that is like, you know, is my brand displayed correctly? Am I following the best practices? My team does all these learnings here about creative best practices. Are they being applied to all my content at scale? Because when I'm producing so much content, you know, standards start to slip. Mm-hmm. And we'd heard essentially a version of that story from pretty much everyone that we talked to. And what we realized is, you know, the problem is, is quite a lot simpler, which is how do we help brands enforce creative quality at scale in a way that is customized to their specific needs and their specific organizations? And that, that sort of light bulb led to the creation of our second product, which is now what we call creative governance, which actually was the product that ultimately got got us to uh, to product market fit and got us to a place where we were able to deploy it at scale and we saw sort of very healthy adoption and very healthy usage across of it. But it it took we took a winding road to get there. Mm-hmm. As it happens, so uh, guys, if you wanna uh, you know actually um, find out more uh, more information in depth about CreativeX, apart from what we are gonna discuss uh, here, you have the links in the description of the episode as well. Uh, as well as links to Anastasia's platforms and LinkedIn and everything else, if you'd like to maybe uh, carry on a personal conversation in terms of collaborations and stuff like this. Um, but uh, Anastasia, just for the people listening and maybe hearing about CreativeX for the first time right now. So um, how does the platform work or what does it enable marketers to do specifically? From my understanding, like if, if I was to just um, judge by what we discussed right now, uh, is it this new version sort of like... Um, hub where you can uh, import your brand guidelines and sort of create some kinds of templates and then you get recommendations from the platform um, in terms of what you can do better in order to make that content work better for you based on other insights from other brands? Not quite. Um, so, so fundamentally, if you take a step back, you know, the goal of CreativeX is really to help build better brands at scale and to do so responsibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we think the first part, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we call creative excellence. And the first part of the what we consider to be the creative excellence journey is let's make sure that every content you're producing is meeting your quality standards. So what that means is, you know, when we go into an organization, let's say, uh, uh, let's say Heineken, what we want to do is understand what does creative quality mean to Heineken, right? What are some of the fundamentals, kind of that baseline before you even start to do really crazy kind of cool stuff? What is the baseline that every creative has to have in order for it to feel like it has met Heineken's quality bar? And and what that bar is will actually differ from whether or not the ad is running on television or Facebook or YouTube. So our first job is to take those, those kind of quality criteria and build technology that automates their detection, such that we can look at every single Heineken piece of content and say, hey, Heineken, this does or does not meet your quality criteria, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and what we do with that is we basically then take that detection and apply it across all the content that our brands are running. And we give them a number of insights back. The first thing is we tell them, you know, not only what percentage of their content meets all of their, their quality criteria, we break it down on a per criterion level and help them understand 
what are the things they're really good at versus what are the things they're not good at? So for example, they might be very good at branding their content, but they might be very bad at, at making sure their content is actually optimized for being consumed without sound. We know most videos today, for example, are watched without sound. Mm-hmm. We help them understand how much money is being put behind content that meets quality standards and content that doesn't. We can even go deeper and understand where in the organization, again, you have to take this in the context of, you know, these are global brands, thousands of marketers, hundreds of agencies, where is their budget being spent least efficiently? So who's producing the most content that doesn't adhere to standards, that um, that isn't meeting best practice, et cetera? And then, so fundamentally, what, what we think about um, the, the value of the tool is a lot of brands have these creative learnings, but applying them at scale is really difficult. And making sure all of your creative production is efficient is also a problem that you just can't solve without technology. So, mm-hmm. so that's the first step in the journey, right? And we think of this as sort of raising the floor. Let's mm-hmm. make sure you're, you're, you're meeting your quality standards. And from there, it gets more complicated, more advanced based on the things that you want to do. So when you have your basic view of quality, from there, a lot of our, our brands might say, okay, great. Now I want to understand how consistently am I communicating my brand? Am I using my distinctive brand assets? Am I, you know, uh, featuring my spokespeople? Uh, how often am I am I featuring my brand colors, my taglines, et cetera, right? Um, then there is also part, some of our brands uh, work in very regulation-heavy environments. So we also help them make sure that they're always complying with consumer rights protection and regulation so they don't get fined for any of the advertising messages that they do. And then the, the last part, uh, something that we're working on now is, helping brands make sure that when they feature people, uh, the people in their advertising are portrayed in a way that is representative and that is not perpetuating stereotypes, right? So mm-hmm. um, we help them understand both the casting choices they're making as well as the representation of people. And, and that's a long journey. But fundamentally, the first step in that journey is always, let's help you make sure that everything is meeting your quality standards. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the business model, um, so you appeal mainly to large corporate kind of uh, clients that have more hubs and then they have to ensure the brand consistency across, uh, you know, like multiple countries or maybe multiple brands in multiple countries. So that would be, you know, kind of like the target market that you address mostly, right? So, you know, it depends. Um, I think a lot of our the problem of kind of more and more content and making sure all that content adheres is probably more more potent across brands that are these big global brands. But the reality is anyone who is serious about brand building and anyone who is investing a significant amount of their budget into creative production mm-hmm. could probably benefit from making sure that there is objective automated standard that helps them enforce at scale those creative production efforts. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in terms of the way that you work with brands, so for example, if uh, you know, if Unilever, let's say, or somebody would like to start working with the creative acts, um, is it a, I don't think it's a completely SaaS type of model. So they, they have to work with your team, right? In order to get all these parameters in place and uh, level up the ground, as you mentioned in the beginning, before building up their um, criteria, right? So uh, it is a, it's entirely a SaaS tool. Um, oh, okay. It's not, yeah. So, so we work in exclusively on a, on a subscription as a service basis. Um, there is our team, because again, the brands we work with tend to be some of the biggest brands in the world. Our team is obviously involved in some of these things, like guiding them to make sure that um, we're automating the right things, helping them uh, roll out this technology at a global level. But 
a lot of the or all the insights are really delivered via the product itself. Mm-hmm. Got you. Okay, so um, let's look a bit about uh, like at this um, at this area of you know creating a lot of content and having to distribute it across multiple platforms and basically also maybe repurposing the content in that sense in order to better uh, get it out to the audience. Um, what are some of the main issues that you maybe found from interviews that you had with your clients or from this process? Uh, what would be some some areas that didn't necessarily have a solution before and maybe CreativeX came as a solution too? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, again, the biggest one is is just enforcing all of this at scale is very, very difficult, right? The average Fortune 500 brand produces over 100,000 pieces of content a year, and that number is is growing. It'll continue to get bigger and bigger with things like dynamic creative optimization. So uh, first of all, it's just kind of a volume problem, right? The second thing that that actually amplifies the problem is when you think about creative best practices or creative learnings, you know, back in the day, you, you had... Um, a couple of creatives, you would run them on TV for a couple of months and that was sort of sufficient, right? Versus now you need a new creative every day and you're running it across all these platforms. Now, what's tricky about that is every platform is its own environment that has their own recipe for success. So what Facebook tells you to do to be successful on Facebook is actually even a little bit different than what you have to do to be successful on Instagram. And it's completely different to what you have to do to be successful on YouTube because the consumption patterns are different, the users are different, the behavior is different. So not only do you have to make a lot more content, but because it's being distributed across all these platforms, if you create a video that you want to put on YouTube, putting that same video on Facebook is not going to work because the rules of engagement are different, right? So, and it is, it is very, very difficult for a marketer to remember these constantly changing environmental best practices on top of having to worry about their day job and like building their brand and optimizing for their performance to make sure that they're actually giving their content the best chance of success. So, you know, a big part of, of you know, the, the problem we solve is not only that sort of scalable problem, but really customizing these learnings and the best practices to every environment so that we can help you quickly figure out, is your content set up for success? And actually, one of the most popular tools that we have is something that we call pre-flight evaluation. Mm-hmm. And it, it's exactly what it sounds like. It gives our marketers and all their agencies a way to come into the tool, upload any content that they just created, tell us, you know, this is the platform it's going on, and we will very quickly tell them essentially thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, this meets all the best practice requirements for that platform or no, it doesn't hear the things you have to fix in order to even give your creative a chance of being seen and heard in that environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And is there an element of uh, brand consistency tracking or, or content effectiveness tracking cross channel? Because this is something that we find a lot of brands that we work with as well um, struggle with, which is, okay, so we have this bunch of content, we have these channels that we distribute this content on. um, And then many times, either they use a customer data platform so that they integrate the insights and then try to drop the, you know, the insights in one place, but this is not so often happening well. Um, Or they have to do it manually and then try to compile these reports, uh, either internally or with our help. Um, is your platform getting involved with solving some of these issues at any point in, in the journey? Yeah, absolutely. So brand, we have an entire product just dedicated to brand consistency, right? Where And what we do for brand consistency is we'll take a brand's brand book 
and we'll basically automate it. We'll automate every single element of what their what brand consistency means to them. So we can tell them very quickly and in real time for all the ads are running sort of today, you know, here is how often you're using your different brand elements. Here's how that differs by market, by channel, et cetera. And here's sort of your brand consistency score, right? All of the data we have, you can combine it with performance data. So for every ad or every piece of content that's run live, we pull in performance data associated with it as well. So, and our system does um, correlations in the background to figure out, is there a statistically significant relationship between some of these creative best practices or some of these brand consistency guidelines and performance? Now, again, coming back to our earlier conversation, what we're finding, especially when we talk about brand consistency, right? So let's take a brand like Coca-Cola, for example. You know, if I had to guess what some of Coca-Cola's uh, brand consistency attributes may be, it may be the usage of the color, the color red. It might be the the kind of iconic Coca-Cola bottle. It might be the uh, the polar bear, right, that they use in their Christmas commercials. Um, so the way we think about tying brand consistency to performance, it's less about saying, "Hey, here's the impact of the bear on performance," because that's not really useful. They're not going to put a bear in every ad, but more about thinking. What is the right kind of amount of branding in each creative that leads to the best, which is why we try and assign a brand consistency score using all these different elements to figure out how much branding do you need in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. Got you. So what's your biggest challenge at the moment? Because you grew a lot and you solved a lot of issues so far. Uh, what's one that still is on your mind and you guys are trying to, uh, to solve or to figure out? Yeah, I, I think, well, for me personally, the big challenge right now is, is, uh, is hiring and recruiting. The company is the company basically, uh, tripled size. We were very small, Congrats. uh, last year. And then we're, we're due to double, if not more than that this year. So I'm pretty much spending all my days hiring and recruiting. Um, in terms of, you know, company and business challenges, I think the, you know, one of the big challenges we have now is, uh, we now have thousands of marketers, tens of thousands of marketers actually using the product. And so we're having to revisit a lot of the earlier decisions that we've made to make sure that those decisions actually now work at scale, right? Mm -hmm. So, which is a little bit tricky because even especially at our stage, you just want to grow and build and add and, and make the platform richer and better. But there is some tech debt, essentially, that we have incurred that we have to make sure we, we kind of pay off sooner rather than later to, to make sure that the, the scaling curve is, is smooth. Mm -hmm. From a marketing perspective or go to market or sales, whichever you think is more relevant, uh, mm. what was, uh, what was um, a catalyst for success for you? Because, you know, you grew a lot and you grew a lot in, you know, Fortune 500 companies. So definitely a big success there. What helped you be so successful from, you know, marketing sales perspectives in, in this B2B space? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wish there was some sort of silver bullet. We actually, we, we don't really have a marketing team. So I, 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 uh, we, we didn't have the luxury for a very long time. We're in the process of building a marketing team right now. But to answer your question directly, the number one reason for our growth was customer referral and word of mouth. Um, and so a lot of what we saw was that once we deployed our technology at someone like Unilever and uh, thousands of Unilever marketers use the product, one of them, you know, the CMO at Unilever, VP of Unilever might talk to 
um, their friends at Pepsi or their friends at Mondelez and end up bringing us up or talking about some of the things they were doing around this problem of content proliferation, you know, erosion of standards, erosion of brand consistency, et cetera. And that person would then reach out to us. Or if someone actually left the company to go from, you know, Unilever to Nestle, you know, within three months, we get a phone call saying, hey, I'm in this new company now. I'd love to bring you guys in and talk about what you could do for, for our company here. And there is no, you know, a lot of that comes down to people, right? Which mm-hmm. is sort of the, the dirty secret because it's not scalable. And, and um, I think a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs are very focused on scale, but sometimes they think that the things that don't scale that are the most powerful. And I think one of the things that we did right, um, that we're still trying to do is, you know, we, we treat our marketers as the experts, right? And so a lot of the product has actually evolved very much on their feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we like to check in with our customers on a regular basis. We try, we actively ask them to criticize our product. We actively try and understand how do they want to work? Where can our product fit in better? And we don't just kind of pay lip service to it. We then go through and build those things. Of course, they have to be in line with our vision and all of that. But we are, we're, we're, I mean, I guess that, you know, the long and short of it is, is the secret of is listening, but I don't think that's much of a secret. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess it comes down to you know being very customer focused in in the true way of listen, like asking for feedback, listening to it, and then implementing it to make the product better to deliver to them, yes. right? Yes. Although one of the things that you know I would say that I sometimes um, uh, nitpick with my team on is I've noticed this tendency that when we ask people for feedback, we ask for feedback in very leading ways because actually the process of asking for feedback is to get for confirmation for something we already believe or we, we want to build or whatever it may be. And, and that doesn't work, right? So, um, you know, there is a way of asking for feedback that really leaves the space open for someone to actually tell you what they're thinking and not in a way that asks them to confirm something you're thinking. And I think it's those open-ended conversations that actually yield the most interesting insight. So I guess... You know, uh, one of the things that I always, when, when my team says, oh, I'm going to ask the customer this, and I'm like, well, you know, let's think about rephrasing that question, because even the way we're thinking about asking, what you're really asking to do is to confirm, you're not asking for their, for what they actually want. And the more you do that stuff, the easier it is to, to essentially just have people validate your ideas rather than listen to, to rather than listening to them. Good point. Okay, so as we go into the end of this episode, which was really, really insightful, and you guys, I hope you already are having a look at the tool and see if it's something that you, you can use for your business. Personally, I think it's something that a number of our clients could um, uh, could make good use from uh, for uh, assuring this brand consistency, because as you mentioned, mainly if the team is big, uh, there's... I think this could erase some of the QA steps that have to happen until the content gets to you know, being actually published or used in commercials and ads. Um, but, you know, Anastasia, from your point of view, uh, because we like to bring in tips and tricks and hacks and stuff like this <laughs> onto the show from different aspects. So I guess our niche or area here would be this content production kind of mm-hmm. space. So um, from the top of your head, uh, from all this uh, data analysis um, experience of years that you had with uh, CreativeX. What would be some tips or tricks for marketers tuning in that maybe produce content in-house that they could use to ensure or to increase the chances of their content being 
more effective on specific platforms. And here you can bring examples from uh, Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Pinterest, you know. Yeah, 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 um, absolutely. So they're, you know, they're, uh, they're all a bit different and there's a little bit of variation by vertical. But generally speaking, um, some of the best practices are, and they really get mapped to user behavior. So the first one is, you know, if you think about the average time, the average view length of a video on a platform like Facebook, it's, I believe, two seconds. Um, and on YouTube, it's five seconds. So the number one learning is you have to brand super early, right? I, I think there is there is sometimes a, a desire to want to tell a long story and introduce your brand at sort of second 30. But the vast majority of people won't even get exposure to that because the average view length of a video is so short. And by the way, branding early does not mean you got to put a logo on it. Like there may be other ways to think about branding. Comes back to our brand consistency conversation, which is, you know, if you're Coca-Cola, it's not about having the logo. Maybe it's about having that iconic red. Maybe it's about having the bottle. Maybe it's about having the polar bear, right? What are those elements that say, hey, this is my brand. How do you build them early and upfront so that right away there is there is brand awareness happening there? Mm-hmm. The second most common thing that that we see a lot of brands get wrong is around uh, framing their their asset correctly. So this is again where because folks are used to taking assets that are intended for one platform and sort of recycling them on another. So what tends to happen is you might create a video for YouTube. Now you know uh, the YouTube aspect ratio that's best is sort of sixteen by nine. So you might take that aspect ratio and use it for your Instagram ad. You would be amazed at how many times we see, you know, you've got this vertical window for an Instagram ad and you've got kind of a horizontal ad running, which means there is about like 70 to 80% of your real estate that's actually blank space that you're not taking up. So even there, you've, you've, you've significantly reduced your chances of being seen and heard because you're not actually using the real estate. It sounds so basic, but you'd be amazed at how many brands get this wrong. The second, the third one that's a little bit trickier is how do you think about sound? Right, because we've been talking about content production, but if we look at the trends, the majority of content production today is happening is is video, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, this is where if you if you look at the biggest platforms, which are Facebook and Instagram, which I'm gonna I'm going to bundle into one because they're part of the same family versus YouTube, their rules around sound or their best practices around sound are very different. So what Facebook says is, I believe something like. 80 to 90% of Facebook content is watched without sound. So if your message is delivered through sound, the user is most likely not going to get it. So you have to think about, you know, whether it's subtitles, supers, or simply how do you tell a story that doesn't require sound to deliver the fundamental message. But if you look at it on the YouTube side, the best practices are completely different because the consumption patterns are different. So on YouTube, the recommendation is if you're going to uh, be running content, you should be optimizing it for sound on consumption. So there it's, how do you actually amplify your message through taglines, sonic identities? You know, it's, a, it's like the, you know, that's McDonald's, right? Like, I don't even have to say anything. So so how do you amplify that? Um, there are a number of other ones. There's stuff around product placement. So again, you know, show your product, show it early, show it being used. Um, there is something, there is a, a number of studies that talk about the importance of of having cuts just because it stimulates the user to keep watching. So mm-hmm. one of the best practices we're seeing a lot is um, have at least one cut in the first three seconds because that that change 
can actually entice the user to keep watching. At least that's what some some research indicates. Um, and then the, the last one that's very, very practical is, again, keep it short. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, we talked about kind of the, the average length being, um, or the average view length being a couple of seconds. It doesn't mean your video has to be, but actually introducing some, some constraints to your creative production team. If they give you a 60-second video, push them to deliver that message in 50 seconds or experiment with different 15-second cuts because that tends to be about the length beyond which most platforms don't really recommend that that you go. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good insight. And uh, I think uh, this one uh, with, the, with the cut, it sounds very familiar to me and I don't remember where I heard it, but it, it was a while ago and I, I, I think it's very valid because indeed, like if you, if you use those first two, three seconds effectively, then, uh, you know, you have a much bigger chance of people still sticking around. And as you mentioned, the, the attention span on uh, Instagram or uh, Facebook is very, very short. So very good advice here to try to show your branding early and, uh, you know, keep the engagement after these two, three seconds as much as possible for these sort of hacks. So this was very, very good insight. Okay, so um, Anastasia, I, I think I kept you long enough here. Uh, it was a bit longer than, than we planned, but this was a very good conversation. Um, and I'm really, really happy that we managed to organize and to meet today. Um, tell us and uh, tell our guys um, here, where can they reach out to you? Or maybe how can they see the product, ask you questions, uh, you know, collaborate if there's an opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is just creativex.com. Um, if anyone has ideas or wants to reach out, info at creativex is the best way to reach our team and we'll make sure it gets routed to the right place. Um, and then we we try and do our best to publish some of the universal learnings we're seeing on LinkedIn and on our blog, which which again, our LinkedIn is just our, our company name and our blog is on our website. So if you want some of these more universal learnings, we try our best. Anytime we see something that, that we think is interesting, we try our best to publish it. So just just keep up on there and, and um, we'll do our best to keep sharing learnings with you. Super. Okay, guys. So hopefully you found this insightful and interesting. Thank you for sticking around to the end. Um, as always, if you have any further questions or any ideas uh, of how we might be able to direct the discussion maybe further or explore some other topics together, then uh, feel free to email us at hello at marketu.com or uh, reach out to Anastasia directly and uh, or to the team at CreativeX. And we'll try to make it happen maybe if it's something that you'd find valuable. Uh, we try to maybe organize another episode together and uh, go into that direction in more depth if Anastasia, if you'd be up for it as well. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah thank you as always for uh for staying around wishing you all the success anastasia thank you again for joining us thank today you. and uh, keep rocking it have a nice one and looking forward to meeting again soon anastasia thank you and wishing you an amazing day as well Speak soon. thank you